We are in Matthew still, and if you're following along, it should say Matthew chapter 6, and I think if you're following in the notes, I have Matthew chapter 5, and that is incorrect. But I was thinking, we're on Sermon 15 going through this, and I had made fun of Tyler taking how many years to go through John, was it? And maybe I shouldn't, because it's taken us a while just to go through chapter 5 of Matthew in regards to that. But it is good to be here this morning. It was a colorful drive down, and it's just so wonderful to see as the Lord um, sprinkles sort of the landscape with His beautiful colors and just to remind us of His greatness and His goodness. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, we read this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I read that and I think, wow, what a model for life. What a model for believers to follow. And then I look around at the world around us. In our social media saturated culture, that kind of motto isn't very conducive. Our world is not conducive to the thought of humility. And it starts off rather young and rather innocently. Uh, if you've had children you've, or nieces and nephews, you've probably all had at least one of these. Watch me. Mom, Dad, watch me. Watch me, Auntie. Watch me. As they seek to be affirmed in whatever they are doing, people like to be noticed. People like to be affirmed in what they're doing. And in our digital world, for anybody with a camera now, the whole world lay at their feet as they seek affirmation. A matter of fact, our culture is so backwards that, and, and, and watch the news and follow along with what's happening, we are so backwards now that affirmation is a right for any lifestyle. We want to be affirmed in what we're doing. People post pictures, videos on what I call Facebook and other social media apps all looking for likes. And when they don't get the number of likes they want, when they don't get the attention they're seeking, they actually remove the photo and then try something else as they seek to be affirmed. We are so backwards. <clears throat> Excuse me. We still got the ums from COVID. Social media allows people to bear their life before the entire world, leading to comparisons. But the only problem as we look at comparisons is that it can either lead to that of feeling inferior to someone else or superior, neither of which are healthy and neither of which please our Lord. See, we live in a day and an age that is perfect for the show-off because the audience is so big. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we have this morning to look into it. And Father, remove the thoughts of anything to come and pass over this last week that we might just focus in on what you have for us this morning. We thank you for, for Matthew and the words that are laid before us, for the record of the life of our Lord Jesus. And may these words just penetrate our heart this morning. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. 
It's important not to lose sight of where we are still in Matthew. It's important not to lose sight that we are still seated on the side of a hill listening to Jesus preach. Present around us are the apostles. Present around us are the disciples, curious onlookers and haters, Israel's religious elite as they watch Christ preach. Still is our connecting point, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus concludes discussing superior righteousness, the righteousness he expected his followers to live out, and now he begins a warning of the danger of religious hypocrisy. And he does so with three illustrations. First on giving, second on prayer, which he actually goes on an aside in a lengthy part of prayer. We're only going to talk a little bit about that this morning. We'll come back to the Lord's Prayer next week. And then finally, a warning regarding fasting. Center stage to us this week is the word hypocrite. It's one of the main words that will jump out from our passage. See, outside of Scripture, a hypocrite was associated with an actor in a play, someone who would pretend to be a character or something they are not. In the New Testament, though, hypocrite takes on a much harsher tone. It takes on a meaning that, it, well, it implies a hardness of heart. It implies an arrogancy to be utterly devoid of genuineness or sincerity. See, in the previous six pericopes, we're given the gives the context to our three illustrations this morning. See, Christ is concerned with the internal. He's concerned with the heart, not the externals. Jesus called it a new ethic, a better righteousness. Let's just recap a few of them. With murder, he wasn't so concerned. He was concerned about the physical, but he was also concerned about the heart and the hatred. And he wanted that to be replaced with a love for those around us. Adultery. Again, not just the physical act. He was concerned for that, but he was concerned that we could live above the lusts of this world and the lusts that would give away to adultery in our hearts with others. Retaliation. Again, to love our enemy and that it was more than lip service. See, Scripture is clear always that God is concerned with our hearts, not just a theatrical righteousness for those that are around us, not for their benefit, but to live from our heart. I invite you to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Here's what it says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 1 serves both as a bit of an introduction and a bit of a summary for us. It begins with a warning. And that warning is the Lord is concerned with our internal reasons. Why do we do the things that we do? And to illustrate this, he uses three areas of the Jewish life that are often referred to as acts of righteousness or their acts of piety. And in each case, there's an assumption. And the assumption is 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before. So Jesus assumes that his followers will be doing this. The assumption is not if you do these acts of righteousness, but when you do these acts of righteousness. The other key part to the introduction comes from this. Do your acts of righteousness in a manner not to be noticed. Why? Well, you have your reward. That's why, because that's your reward. You get noticed for doing the acts of righteousness, that's your reward. Now, I'm grateful for the donations that I see made out of Hollywood for the homeless and other worthy causes, but they serve as an illustration of exactly what Jesus means. How often are these events held for whatever cause and there rolls out the red carpet to showcase everyone that's coming to the dinner or the auction. The photographers or paparazzi are present to take the photographs to be plastered all over the media. The meal served is worth a fortune, and the attendees are all given gift bags or goodie bags just for coming. Stars participating in the Live 8 charity concert in Philadelphia in July could shop for freebies. Satellite radios, Gibson guitars, Hugo Boss suits in a boutique run by PR people. See, the reward is the attention they're receiving for being there. The affairs are flamboyant. And that's exactly the style of giving that Jesus Christ is discouraging here. Now, I don't mean to paint all celebrities with the same brush. There are those out of Hollywood and other famous places, sports, that give under the radar. And how do we know they give under the radar? There'll be some reporter or journalist that will snoop around or perhaps a recipient of their generosity exposes and leaks out that, hey, so-and-so donated to this. I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush. But that flamboyancy to which we see on those carpets as they give and raise money for the needy is exactly what Christ is warning us about here. Christians, well, we're not immune to such, from such behavior either, though. Watch some of the religious cable shows where the so-called teachers, with horrible doctrines, put on a show. And I'm hesitant to call them out here, but I'd gladly have a personal conversation with anybody to discuss Anybody you may have questions on. Years ago in some churches, you could purchase a pew if you gave enough money. Congregations like to center out big givers. Marjorie and I were discussing a church that's raising money for a building renovation fund. And if you give enough money, you can get a ribbon. We're not immune from this. It's it just saddens my heart to hear it, actually. It bothered me because I know the church. Look with me at the first three illustrations. Jesus uses to draw our attention to this very issue. Why do we do what we do? Is it from a transformed heart or is it desire to be the center of attention? Hey, look at me. So our first illustration comes out of Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, 
that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. As mentioned, Jesus starts with the assumption, and the assumption, the position he starts with is that his disciples will give. And when you give to the needy, or we could use that old-fashioned word almsgiving, alms was, was more than money. It was giving food or material goods, and it was donated to people who were in poverty, who were in need. When you do this, don't sound the trumpet as the hypocrites do. Now, the, tr- the phrase trumpet is a curious one. It could be being used metaphorically. It could be comedic. Others think it refers to the feast that would take place in Israel, and they would be giving at those times, and as the horns and trumpets blasted, people would walk up at that moment and start giving because it was in front of everybody, and they would see how, how pious and how righteous they were by giving. I had one professor, and this sticks in my mind in, in seminary, and he said what it was referring to is they, they had boxes in front of the synagogues, and they were sort of horn or trumpet shape. And as you went by, you would drop your offering or your tithe into that, and it would fall through the trumpet or horn shape, and it would go to the bottom of the box where they'd get it from later. Now, in first century Israel, they, they did not have bills, debit cards, credit cards. No, they had coins. And those coins were made out of different metals. And as you would drop them into a box, they'd make noise. So if you had a handful of money and you wanted to be noticed, you just do a little... And as the coins landed, everybody would look to see what the noise was from. He believed that was it, the, the drawing of attention to yourself as you were giving. No matter which one, the point is simple. The disciples of Christ, you and I are encouraged to give in a manner that does not draw attention to ourselves. Nor is the disciple to go out on the streets and hand out gifts to draw attention to themselves. You've all seen them. Stage photo ops where celebrities or YouTubers randomly hand out cash to people. All seeking attention. Or mysteriously, they show up at a soup kitchen, and I cringe when all the paparazzi and photographers and news people are there, and they make the celebrity out to be superior, and look what he's doing for the needy, and isn't this wonderful? And then they put the person in need in the most pathetic light possible. Now, I'm sure there are, are those those that are there in genuine need don't give a hoot for the reason. And they're just grateful for the gift. They're grateful that somebody's giving them some relief. But as followers of Christ, if we're involved in these things, we need to be careful, very careful. Careful that it doesn't become about us when we're giving or helping out in those areas. And very careful that the recipient of those gifts 
is treated with dignity. It's not a show about us giving. It's about meeting their need out of a transformed heart. Jesus' expectation is clear. Look at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may be so that your giving may be in secret. And that sounds absurd, doesn't it? Don't left how do you not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing? I mean they often they often work in conjunction with one another. How is this even possible? Well, obviously it's a figure of speech. James Montgomery Boyce said it well when he said it points to an absence of ostentation or flamboyance, not only before men, but also before the giver himself. He goes on, Our charity should be inspired by the presence of Christ in our heart. See, giving is to flow from a transformed heart. It's the desire to live in obedience, in recognition of God as the owner of all. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. It comes from the heart. Now, if you're following along in a King James Version, verse 4 will end with the words, reward you openly. Openly is not in the majority of manuscripts. It's actually believed to be a later add-on. And if you think about it, to say that God's going to reward you openly seemingly stands in contrast to the passage or the spirit of the passage. Give to the poor so God can shower you with gifts publicly. I believe it's an add-on. How and when Jesus decides to reward you is up to him. He, he may or may not reward you in this life. It may be in the next life. He may choose to reward you openly. He may choose to reward you secretly. Otherwise, you could take this verse and it can be twisted to support the false teaching of what we call prosperity gospel. Give to get more. I'm convinced that you and I are not to give for those motives. We are to give out of a grateful heart for all that God has done to us. Now that leads to an honest, an honest question here. Should I only then give to the church in cash in an unmarked envelope? I've met those who do exactly that. For those who don't know, I spent 20 years and I still consult in the personal financial field, uh, people struggling with paying debts and, and different things like that. And so I have met those, and that's how they give to their church, in cash, in an unmarked envelope. And I'm not going to say they're wrong. That is their conviction. But I'm not sure it's necessary. Our tax laws allow for charitable giving, and that charitable giving can be written off on your taxes so that you pay less. And I personally believe that's good stewardship. One of the reasons I believe that is, yes, it's biblical for us to pay taxes, However, I know that some of those taxes that I pay get used for immoral reasons or immoral purposes that I would have issues with. So I like to think that if I write off my donations, then that money comes back to me, and then I get to decide where that money goes. And I, too, have met many people who will write off on their taxes, and then from their, donate, from their 
um, income tax refund each year, we'll take a portion of that as an offering and give it back to the Lord and support various missions or projects that way. If you want to know more about giving, two weeks I think it is on Sunday evening, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Okay, I lost myself. That's terrible. Anyhow, I was on giving. That's where I am. Okay, so I think it's fine for Christians to donate and to receive tax receipts. And, and, and I believe I can support this from Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, where we read this. And he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance but she gave out of her poverty and has, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So Jesus was obviously sitting somewhere where he could watch people go into the temple. And as he watched them go in the temple, he, he could see them putting their money in. And, and he, it was very open. But Jesus doesn't mention this as a concern. His concern was when people draw attention to themselves in a flamboyant manner to say, hey, look how pious I am. Look how I give to the Lord. He moves on to our second illustration in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, you have received, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Once again, the call is don't be like the hypocrite. Do not live like the hypocrite. Do not emulate them in prayer. Now, prayer was and is a big part of Jewish life. Praying in front of the synagogue is very common practice. And the issue wasn't position. The Bible, you can find people praying in various positions. Prayer is mentioned in kneeling, laying prostrate, sitting, and standing. And the issue wasn't the location, whether it was in the synagogue or out on the street. No, the issue was they loved to pray wherever there was an audience. It was all about the show. So Jesus is not forbidding public prayer. The Old Testament has examples of public prayer. Solomon prayed in front of the whole nation of Israel from 1 Kings chapter 8, two verses, 22 and 23. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven, and he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath. 
keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Ezra prayed publicly, and Jesus later gives a blessing in Acts chapter 4. Or gives a blessing. In Acts chapter 4, it records for us a prayer meeting. So nowhere in Scripture is public prayer condemned. What is forbidden is the prideful attitude, the, the attitude of, hey, look at me. Look how pious I am. Look at the prayer I can say in front of everybody. Look at me shout my prayers on the street corners. I like what one commentator said about public prayer. Public prayer should be God-honoring, selfless, and based on a true desire to speak to God and not to men. If we can pray publicly without violating these principles, we do well to pray publicly. If, however, our conscience forbids it, there is nothing less, there is nothing less effective about prayer offered in secret. All of us have sat through a public prayer and probably felt uncomfortable at one time or another. See, rather than drawing attention to God, it, it becomes showtime. This can be a challenge for all pastors. This can be a challenge for anybody who gets up in front of a congregation. Prayer should not be a time, and I've been guilty of it, should not be a time to review the points of the sermon that was just preached. I admire one pastor who said this, when he prays, he prays to God. You're just listening in. He's not worried if he impresses his congregation, and he's not worried if they're not impressed by it. He simply prays to the Lord. Jesus' encouragement to us, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And when your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word translated here, room, is a fascinating one. It can mean inner room, a storeroom, a closet. And for you farmers here this morning, it can actually mean a storehouse, a granary, or even a barn. See, the principle here is private. Not a showy, pra- not a showy prayer, but a private prayer. Most of our prayer life should be in private. It's an intimate conversation, or better yet, use the word commune. You commune with God. You begin to share or exchange your most intimate thoughts and feelings. The, the in secret and God reward you shows up again here. Jesus' comments on prayer don't end here, and we're not going to go into them right this morning because he goes on to talk about the Lord's Prayer. We'll pick up on that next week. But verses 7 and 8, he has a few more words on prayer. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I love that empty phrases. That actually could be translated babbling on, prattling, or drivel. Vain repetition. If you want some modern examples of this, just go look on YouTube. Or, if you prefer, you can turn on some of those religious charlatan television programs, and you'll see all kinds of examples of what I mean. 
The best scriptural example comes from Baal and, and Elijah. You recall the 400 prophets, and they were supposed to pray and ask God to rain down fire to set the, the um, altar on fire and the sacrifice. And as Elijah stood by, he kind of, well, he didn't kind of, he did tease them. And the prophets began to dance around for hours, and they shouted in vain repetitions over and over again. They even began to cut themselves, all in an attempt to get attention from their God to do something. Matter of fact, that's, that's the danger with the Lord's Prayer. It, beca- it can become a vain repetition. When it was pulled from schools, I wasn't overly concerned because as I sat through school, most people didn't even say the Lord's Prayer and most of the participants weren't believers. Unfortunately, when it was pulled from schools, a lot of believers got really upset and they treated the Lord's Prayer like it was some sort of magical incantation and that it kept the students on the straight and narrow. And then when it was pulled, look out. That's not what the Lord's Prayer was about. The Bible gives no prescribed length for a prayer, no prescribed length of time to be sent in prayer. There's examples of short prayers and long prayers. See, prayers should not be our last resort. They should be our first resort. Prayers should be regular throughout the day. For some, morning prayers work great. For others, well, they don't wake up until noon. And the position, it's of no relevance. You can pray laying down. You can pray on a walk. You can pray while you're riding your bike. You can pray while you drive your car. Just don't close your eyes. And I've done that accidentally. Because you're so used to closing your eyes when you're praying, going along, oh, I should pray for this person. Lord, oh, wait a second. I've got to keep my eyes open. But it doesn't matter. You can pray in any of those places. Verse 8 is also curious. Don't approach the Lord as he doesn't already know what's going on. Did you catch that? Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I take this like a parent. If you're a parent, you'll get this. Your child comes to you, and they're going to ask you for something. They might have a need or something coming up at school. You, most times, already know what they're going to ask you. You find that when your kids were younger? Anybody? Am I the only? I didn't have ESP. Come on. Okay? So, but you still wanted them to come and to ask. And as we look here at these verses, that's what God wants. He already knows. But He wants us to treat Him as as the sovereign Lord that He is, and to come to Him and to ask. Now skip down to verse 16 with me as we tackle our last of three illustrations because they really fit well. Verse 16 of chapter 6. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that they are that they are fasting that their fasting may be seen by others truly i say to you they have received their reward but when you fast anoint your head wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others 
but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Once again, a familiar pattern, an assumption that the disciples will fast. And we're not going to go into fasting this morning. That's not the purpose of our little illustration here. That's not the purpose of the whole passage. But fasting had become not a time to focus in on God and in their relationship with Him and to enter into a private time of prayer. Rather, once again, it had become an occasion to show off to the world how spiritual they were. They purposely made themselves look like they were starving, all hoping to be noticed. Perhaps someone would walk up to them and say, are you okay? And that would give opportunity for them to say, well, yes, I'm fine. I'm famished, but you know how it is when you fast. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. It's that wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Look Look how spiritual I am. You can see that I'm fasting. I worked with a a Christian mission agency for a while. And we had one gentleman that was like this. Everyone knew when he was fasting. Everybody knew. And it was a little on the sad side because he himself shouldn't have fasted because it was unhealthy for him. Whenever he fasted, he would get sick physically. But that didn't bother him because when he got sick, well, I got sick because I was fasting it was like he, he lived with this martyrdom on his shoulders of, of trying to be spiritual. Jesus says, those type of people, my friend, and those who would walk around town showing that they were fasting, they have their reward. They wanted to get noticed while they've been paid in full. They got the attention they desired. People noticed them. What does he say to the disciples? When fasting, you should go about living your life as normal. If you're fasting that day and you shave, get up and shave. If you wear makeup, go on goes the makeup. You're to live your life normal. And if you're fasting for a meal, don't sit around the lunchroom at work so people can notice that you don't have a lunch in front of you. Go for a walk. I've known plenty of people that have fasted for a meal, and they go for a walk, and they take the time to pray. When Jesus ends the same form with the same formula, but by your Father, so you're going to be seen fasting by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. God sees. God knows. He will reward you appropriately. Fasting is not done for a show. Fasting is an act of worship between you and the Lord to set some special time aside to pray, to concentrate on that relationship. Fasting, praying, giving can all easily become a performance, a time to show off your spirituality. These acts of righteousness are really about God in our desire to pursue a relationship with Him. First, by living in obedience. Second, as an overflow of gratitude for all that the Lord has done for us. Third, an act of worship from the heart. I am leery of churches that become pastor-focused 
and are personality-driven. I'm leery of, of leadership that removes the focus from the Lord and, and places it elsewhere. I'm actually pleased there's a multiple elders here at this church. I'm pleased that they rotate amongst the pastoral prayer. Sunday morning is not the pastor's show. It's a worship service. At leaders, elders, and deacons need to be aware how easy it would be to slip in performance mode. Performance mode is driven by pride, and, and pride is a de- destructive characteristic that can ruin a church and can ruin relationships. Giving is a private matter, and there's a danger to assume that one person is a big giver. If anybody gives you the impression that they're a big giver, I would look for two things. First, they don't likely give as much as they pretend to. And second, the reason you know that they're a big giver and the reason they tout that is because it comes with strings and you need to beware. We're told we are not to be a respecter of persons based on wealth. When giving is done for show, there's an immediate adrenaline shot of the that-a-boy endorphins that go through a person. But the long-term satisfaction of giving is not there. But when you give secretly, there's a satisfaction. And honestly, it can be fun. If you're giving to someone who's in need and you just drop a bag of groceries off, we had somebody at one church, that's what they did. They knew this family was in need And for several weeks while they were unemployed, they kept dropping bags of groceries off. And these people were like, who's who's dropping bags of groceries off at our house? But no, I happened to find out who it was by accident. I wasn't told. But it it was so fun to watch that. And I imagine for the person that dropped it off, not being identified, brought great satisfaction. Because in all of it, who got the praise? Not the, not the person buying the groceries and dropping them off. The Lord got the praise. As the people are just like, wow, someone's being generous to us. And they couldn't figure it out. Lastly, when we put on a show in any of these areas, in any of these areas, it's not pleasing to God. In John chapter 4, verse 23, we read this. But the hour is coming and is now here when... The, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And before we close, I want to circle back, because I'm sure some of you are thinking in your minds, wait a second, back in Matthew 5, 16, didn't, didn't you preach this just a few weeks ago? So if you want, you can flick back there. Five sixteen. In the same manner, or in the same way, let your light shine before others so that may, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how do we reconcile verse 16 with our three illustrations? Here's a couple of notes. Just as in the synagogue, when people would see, you give, see people give, people will see you give here. They won't know how much. A few people will. And, and they, in those positions, should be very tight-lipped. And if they're not, you need to remove them. 
I had one congregation, a new believer, and I know who discipled him. And I knew he was discipled to give a tithe. He came to me, and he was just livid. How do people know how much I'm giving? I'm thinking, oh, no. What a mess. He didn't always give that much. He was a contractor, and he had the largest, at that time, the largest contract in Ontario, government contract in Ontario. And he was working all kinds of hours to finish it off. So his paychecks were rather large. But what a mess. So if you have somebody in your congregation that can't keep a tight lip, they shouldn't be doing that. I want to refer back to Mark 12 again. As I said, Jesus saw people giving. That's fine. And if done properly and with the right attitude, that is fine. It's not an issue. I've been asked by non-believing friends, do you give to your church? I don't lie to them. I tell them yes. I've even been asked by some, do you tithe? I don't lie to them. If done properly in a, in a private conversation, it's not showy. They're, they're actually intrigued and they're asking questions. I didn't have a problem. I answered them. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. They have genuine questions. They're intrigued. And it's not like you're going, look at me. They have come to you to ask some questions about your faith. I also been asked numerous times when I was worked to give to causes. And I think if you're asked to give to causes at your workplace and it lines up with your budget and it lines up philosophically, there's nothing immoral about or wrong with it, then I think as a believer, you should be generous. No, I'm not talking you pull out a wad of 20s and start peeling them off to the person. There's a way to be generous and still somewhat secretly about it. But I think it's fine to give, and I think that's another place where people see that what you preach matches what you do. Word got out quietly about what we did here at Forest Baptist Church. We showed hospitality to our brothers and sisters from Ukraine. There is no need to blast it over the airwaves. The Lord has received praise for it. It got out quietly into the neighborhood. People started bringing donations. I cringe when I've seen what some churches have done. I've cringed when I've seen that the, the churches sort of promote themselves by showcasing the families they have helped and say, hey, look who we helped. I think it lacks dignity. I think it makes those that you've shown your love to and hospitality more like spectacles for the world to view them. So quietly we do what is right. Quietly we treat people with dignity and respect. And the word gets out. Last week we collected a bunch of food. Well, the most expensive food still here, flour. Um, we collected food. There were donations. We didn't have to brag it out or toot our own horn into the community. We've already heard back from the community of the appreciation and the gratitude and I hope we can do it again. By all reports in the financial world, this is going to be a very hard winter for some people. 
Christmas and winter is going to be tough for a number of people. Went out on business meals. I had to attend a number of luncheons. And yes, there were a number of luncheons that I attended that I went home sick, for those who know I have food allergies. But I would pray. I would just bow my head silently, and I would say a short prayer, thanking the Lord for the meal. Rarely was I ever noticed. But when I was noticed, the gentleman that was talking to me, he looked up from his plate, and I think he must have seen me praying, and he just stopped. And when I lifted my head up, he just continued on. It wasn't a big spectacle, but he knew what I was doing. Is it wrong? Yeah, so I do pray at restaurants. And, 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 I, and I think that's fine. Just to bow your head, quietly thank the Lord for the food and bless it. I think that's God-honoring. But when, when you try to witness through your prayer to the whole restaurant, and you've maybe been in a restaurant and heard that before, well, I think you have your reward. And it might not be the reward you want from how people are thinking about you as you blast out your prayer of salvation for everyone in every table there. But I think it's appropriate in humility. And it can serve as a witness in a private conversation. And I've had that question asked too. Hey, notice you pray before meals when we go out. It opens up an opportunity to pray with them or to talk to them and to share with them. And if the Lord directs, to share with them the message of salvation. So, I believe what we read in chapter 6 this morning, those three illustrations are very compatible with chapter 5. But there's no need to toot our own horns. There's no need to hide, though, either. If people inquire, that's fine. As long as it's done in humility and as long as it's pointing to the Lord. I, I, I think of the food bank. If asked why we did the collection, it's our desire as a church to bless our community. Why? Because God has blessed us. That opens up the door to give gratitude to the Lord. And if appropriate, it also opens up the door for a testimony of salvation. See, the issue that Jesus Christ was driving at here was pride. There's a difference between showing off in pride and doing things in humility. And so as we go about our daily tasks and work, may the good deeds and good things we do, as they leak out and people find and hear about them or see them, may they open up doors and opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to reflect back that why we do these things is because it flows for a heart of gratitude for what God has done for us. May we not be showy. And you all know what I mean by that. And if you don't, I put you over to cable television. You can see it there. We need to be people of humility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We can't express that enough. And Father, as we think of your words this morning, we pray that we will examine our hearts. I pray that I will examine my heart. Father, in areas where we show off, may we be convicted. 
And Father, we pray for uh, the generosity that has been shown from this church to others in the church and to the community. May it open doors, Lord Jesus, for us to give the gospel message to those in the community who inquire. To be able to show your love and to be able to reach out and say, we do this because of your love for us, Lord, and we desire to love them. So we pray for open doors for each person here this morning that knows the Lord, that you will open those doors to share the love of God with them, to be able to share the message and hope that is found in Jesus Christ, the salvation that only comes from him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.